My name is Pastor Susan, and it is so good to see you all. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. And thanks so much for those of you who are joining us online. Hello, and we value you, and we're so glad that you're here with us. I would like to begin with a question, and that question is a question that we asked earlier in the fall during our Explore God series, but I'm going to throw it out there again, and that question is, does God care about evil and suffering in the world? Does God care about evil and suffering in the world? Just think about that question with me for a minute. How about does God care about poverty and malnutrition? And what about the abuse and mistreatment or even oppression of vulnerable people? Does God care about that? Or what about racial or gender-based discrimination? Does God understand and get how bad that can be? Or to bring it closer to home, does God care about injustice and things that are just profoundly unfair that we experience in our lives or in our communities, in our families, at work, things that are unfair and unjust. Does God care about those things? These are really, really important questions, hugely important questions. And they're questions that we, as people of faith, who follow Jesus must have answers for, especially from a biblical or theological worldview. The prophet Amos deals with these very questions. The prophet Amos deals with these very questions, and we are in a a sermon series about prophecy and prophets. And each of these questions I just asked were intentional, because they are dealt with in the nine chapters in this prophetic book. So Amos is one of the writing prophets. And what I mean by a writing prophet is that um, writing prophets are distinct from the verbal prophets, like Elijah and Elisha, whose prophecies are not written down, but their ministries are written about. Um, but the written prophet, the writing prophets, are the ones like Amos and Joel and Isaiah and Ezekiel, whose prophecies we do have written down in the scriptures. And Amos is a book that deals with the emotional, physical, spiritual atrocities that were known in the known world at that time around the people of Israel. And it does not deal with them lightly. So Amos starts in chapter 1, verse 2, by saying that the Lord roars in Zion. We sang uh, that song earlier today about God being a lion. Amos says that the Lord roars from Zion. And this image of a roaring lion is repeated multiple times in this scripture. The tone of this book is very much like a roaring lion with authority and power, and sovereignty, and threat. Before we jump in, it's very important that we understand the context in which Amos prophesied. I've been walking around and talking to people, asking, like, have you ever studied Amos? How many here have ever studied Amos? Okay, a few of you. 
Yeah. It's not an oft-studied book, but a rich one. So it's very important that we know the context of Amos. For uh, a book on courage written to the believing church during World War II in the time of Nazi Germany is very different from a book on courage just in general, right? The context is really important. So what do we know about Amos? In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, um, we know that, uh, Scott, sorry, from 1 and 2, we know that he's from Tekoa, which is a town around 20 miles south of Jerusalem. I looked it up on Google Maps, and it's still there. Um, you can see it. Tekoa is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem, 10 miles south of Bethlehem. And it was at the time of Amos in the kingdom of Judah, which is a separate kingdom at this time from Israel. Scholars estimate that Amos wrote in around 9, 750 BCE, or um, in the years before Christ. So he was a contemporary of, of the prophets Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah. Uh, and Israel and Judah were two different countries because of a civil war that had happened between them about 150 years prior. In Amos 7, verses 12, 14, and 15, Amos says, I was no prophet, but a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. So Amos spends his day dealing with herds of animals and trees. Amos just has a normal job. He's a normal guy. He's not a professional or well-known prophet. He doesn't come from a family of prophets, which sometimes happens. He's just a normal, ordinary man having a normal, ordinary job, just minding his own business, and then God calls him to this task. And in chapter 17, verse 15, it says, But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. This, by the way, reminds us that God loves to use just normal people like you and me for great works for his purposes. People just doing their thing, doing, I'm uh, just a tech worker. I work with children and just whatever it is. God often uses normal people and calls them at certain times to do important, purposeful things. And I'd like to point out to you four things about the context in which Amos was ministering. Firstly, he ministered in a time of national disunity. So I already said that Israel and Judah were two different countries at this time, and their relationship was uh, marked by periodic seasons of great civil unrest, war, and then sometimes peace. So this was a short season of peace between Israel and Judah in the midst of lots of tension. 20 years prior, the king of Judah had had some successes with his other neighbors. And so the king of Judah goes up and attacks Israel. And uh, King Jehoash, the king of Israel, just kicks Judah's tail. So Judah was left with indignation and humiliation. Israel was a much larger kingdom. The Israelites left puffed up with pride and arrogance. And Judah was humiliated. And they knew that they were not quite as strong. It was also a time of military superiority 
both Judah and Israel were strong relatively in their might. Israel had recently even expanded its borders to the east. And at this time, it was not a time where the mega empires that they were surrounded by, they were not advancing toward Israel and Judah yet. It was also a time of economic prosperity. Trade was booming in Israel um, because Israel had taken control of some major trade routes, uh, joining Mesopotamia to the north and east to Assyria, and um, which totally increased its revenues. They had a system of tolls collected from passing caravans. Israel was doing pretty good economically. So people furnished their homes with fantastic furniture. Some people even had two homes, winter homes and summer homes at this time. Not since the time of Solomon did Israel have such good fortune. But the excessive wealth created two classes of people, the poor and the rich. The poor became poorer and the rich flourished and became richer. And the rich had opulent homes, while many of the poor did not have adequate places to stay. So this is the environment, the setting. And perhaps you see some parallels between their time and our time. National disunity, military superiority, economic prosperity. But there's one more thing that we don't see quite as much in the Silicon Valley that we do in this scripture, and it is religious activity. For Israel, it was a time of massive religious activity. The people of Israel had a high level of religiosity, evident in lots of historical signs of the payment of tithes and offerings, religious gatherings, the singing of hymns, great celebrations, rich crowded shrines with their substantial tithes, sacrificial rituals, burnt offerings, One scholar points out, their pilgrimage to the shrine was the occasion for great pleasurable feasting with opportunity for extraordinary observance, as might attest to a person's social position. So their religious activity was public, loud, and grandiose. But too often, such religious activity had no bearing on their socioeconomic interactions. Amos begins this book very intentionally. In Amos Amos chapters 1 and 2, there are eight specific sections. The first six are for their neighboring pagan nations that surround Israel and Judah. He addresses six different nations that are neighbors. And they all begin with this pattern that says, For three sins of blank, comma, even for four. And this is an idiom of the day. It's kind of colloquial speak for repeated violations that's part of a bigger pattern. Okay, you know, we have things that we say, and we kind of know what you mean when you say this, like once upon a time. So when you say something like, for three sins of so-and-so, even for four, you know, oh, man. This has been going on for a long time. So, for example, if I was writing in this time, I might say to my family, for three sins, 
even for four, you have forgotten to load the dishwasher and wipe the counters after you made those cookies late at night. You get what I'm saying? This would mean, girl, this is not the first time you've done this. And how's your mama feeling about it? Not good. So these six nations are categorized in three sets of two. In verses 3 through 8, you get Damascus and Gaza. And they are accused of human cruelty in general. Basic treatment of people as objects and things. There's an image of a threshing, um, threshing with sledges. So I guess when they threshed grain, when they took away the cover of the grain with the grain, they used these machine or these um, tools that had like uh, teeth. And they said that they used this for people. We don't know if that's a metaphor or actual, but either way, it's horrible. Just human cruelty. Um, Gaza used people for their own profit, capturing entire towns and turning those uh, captives into slaves for profit. So they were engaging in human trafficking. And God is like, I condemn you for that, Damascus and Gaza. In verses 9 through 12, Tyre and Edom, they are condemned for human cruelty against their brothers. It says they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So basically, these people were traitors against the people with which they had a covenant. These are people who they're supposed to be in a brotherhood covenant with. Edom and Israel were related to each other. Uh, by They were descendants of Jacob and Esau. Yet they slaughtered men and women of the land toward each other's uh, brothers and sisters. And in verses 13 and 15, uh, of chapter 1 and chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Amos calls out uh, Ammon and Moab for human cruelty against the helpless. It says they ripped open pregnant women in Gilead in order to enlarge their border. This is really intense. Atrocities against people's bodies. And these kind of atrocities were the practice so that it would instill fear all around. And this is the idea of the crucifixion, right? In historical times, they did that so that other nations could know, ah, these people, they're really powerful, really cruel. You don't want to mess with them. And they did these horrific things as PR to communicate how bad they were. Through Amos, God is roaring like a lion, and calling out these nations for the violence and evil that they had done. And then, in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, Amos condemns Judah, which is Israel's sister nation, who had the law of God, and they get called out for rejecting the law of God and not keeping his decrees. They had let themselves be led astray by false gods and the gods of their neighbors, And instead of keeping to the word of God, which they knew, they uh, took a little bit of that, took a little bit of that, took a little bit of that that they liked, and mixed it all up. And in that way, they strayed from the pure word of God that God had given to them, Um, even though they had been given the commands and the covenant of God. There are seven nations addressed thus far, and seven called out. And the thing about literature at this time is that seven is the number of completion. 
Okay? So if once, if, if someone were to, uh, create a song or a literature or a speech, once you get to seven, you're like, oh man, that's, that whole thing is wrapped up. Right? Uh, it, seven would be the climax, the conclusion. Now I just want to say, if you're a person in Israel at this time, and you hear finally this, this challenge to Judah, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? Yeah. If Amos were publicly prophesying in the sanctuaries of either Bethel or Gilgal during the pilgrimage festival, the Israelites are likely to have cheered, right? You get the, these guys are doing bad and these guys are evil. And, oh, this is, yeah, that's horrible. And finally, Judah gets called out for all the, the ways that they've strayed and have, they've not been faithful toward God. Oh, that's awful. And to bring it a little closer to home, I want to say, how easy is it to agree when someone else, your neighbor, your adversary, or even your sibling, gets reprimanded? How easy is it to agree when someone, perhaps someone that you are threatened by, don't like, have a beef with, gets reprimanded? I'm going to tell you from my own life, it's just me and my sister in my family. And my sister, who's five years younger than me, was annoyingly smart. She got perfect grades, read every book. And then, like, for her time off, she played her cello. You know, it's like, ah. Uh. When my family went to Korea to visit our family, my mother, who's not really boastful, would let herself boast among her sisters about how smart my sister was. If I was in my in the room while she was talking to her sisters, she would look at me and say, and Susan, very social. <laughs> but at one point, my sister started dating someone who was a little, you know, my parents were not excited about who she was dating. And I was more than happy to join in on the judgment. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that girl needs some wisdom. I mean, that kid Isaac, he's not good enough for her, and she knows it. Of course, this was absolutely ridiculous because I was so far from the bastion of wisdom of who I dated myself. I was more like the fount of foolishness. But I just have to say it was so easy and so tempting and sometimes so delicious to judge someone else, isn't it? I mean, I just want you to think. That person, you would like to judge anyway, and then you hear someone else judging them, and it, it's just so tempting, isn't it? I, the, the word delicious did come to my mind. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that person. You know what I mean. My guess is that that's how Israelite hearers would be feeling at this point in the prophecy of Amos. Oh, yeah, Tyre and Edom, they're awful. Such bad people. And Judah, you're right. They should know better. They need to learn. But strangely, Amos' tirade does not stop at seven. 
the expected seven, the number of completions, seven. He keeps going. Amos has eight nations that he calls out. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them. Though they were tall as cedars and strong as oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from your, among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel? Declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. I ask you, what do you hear in the voice and the tone of the Lord in this? I want to read that whole section to you so you could get a sense of the tone. God speaks as one who knows Israel intimately, as one who has had a close relationship one who has walked with them. He's tried so hard to have a good relationship with them, so much for so long. But Israel has been unfaithful. And God sees what is being done in their midst. And what is Israel doing? It says they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. In this nation... Even those who are prosperous and strong, they are flippantly using the poor to make themselves even richer. They are climbing up the ladder of prosperity, stepping over and even trampling on the heads of the poor. Men are engaging young women in sexual exploitation, the treating of women as objects, and God has a big problem with this. He says it profanes his holy name. It is deeply offensive to him. The use of people as objects. In all of this, the religious activity that they do at public altars, they're doing it it while wearing clothes that they got through usury, through the lending of money at extremely high rates and taking garments from desperate people as a pledge. And God tells the Israelites, I've done all these things for you, to love you, to rescue you, to bring you out of Egypt. I've raised up prophets from among your children, Nazarites. Nazarites are people who are supposed to be special beacons of holiness and purity. And he says, is this not true, people of Israel? You made the Nazarites drink wine, something that they, it was their special practice not to do. You commanded the prophets not to prophesy. You shut them up. The very words that I I wanted to give to you, 
you, you said, just shut up. So God tells Israel that great judgment will come upon them. Now then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. And the Israel will not save his, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. That last, it, these are all images where their military might, their strength, their ways that they're so confident in themselves, those things will dissipate. And the warriors who have their heavy, strong armor will just shed it because they're like, I got to flee. Nothing's going to stop me. I'm just running away. God is saying, Israel, you're so blind. You think that just because you're religious, you're pleasing God. You think you can pick and choose which parts of God's commands you want to live out. You think you can have injustice and oppression baked into how you live and God will just let it pass? No. For there are eight condemnations in the first two chapters of Amos, and Israel is the zenith, the pinnacle, the center stage of this tragedy. But I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, that maybe it's not just the nation of Israel who might be caught being a blind hypocrite. Recently, many of us have been appalled by what other nations are doing in the world. I don't know about you, but I've been appalled. Russia to Ukraine, Hamas to Israel, Israel to the people of modern-day Gaza. And the images in the news are horrific. Have you ever wondered, what is wrong with these people? How could they be so evil? Have you ever voiced your disgust for how violent these people are being to one another? Have you stood in judgment of other nations, other peoples, and other, even other individuals? But standing in judgment of other nations, one can be so easily blind to evil done by our own nation. The modern nation of Israel has killed nearly 250,000 Palestinians since war broke out in, in October, which is grievous. It is grievous objectively and before God. But according to Brown, a study in Brown University, in the wars that the U.S. has waged since 9-11 in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, and the Philippines— more than 432 civilians have been killed. Oh, 40, sorry, 1,000, yes. <laughs> like what? 432,000 civilians, thank you, have been killed in the fighting since 200, uh, 2001. I don't think our news covers that, or somehow we don't register that as much. It is easier to think about what those other nations are doing. And it's more 
difficult or it is tempting to not think about what our very own nation has done. Now, it's not that the U.S. started the whole thing on 9-11, but the civilians in these countries didn't start it either. And each of those people, like those living in Israel and in Gaza and in our country, uh, were each made in the image of God, just as those who died on 9-11 were. The U.S. could have pursued non-military alternatives to holding accountable those responsible for perpetuating the horrible 9-11 attacks, and those alternatives would have been far less costly in human lives. Yet it is so easy to stand in judgment of those other nations who act violently against one another. But did you know that by far the U.S. produces the most weapons in the whole world? By far. And making much money off of these means of violence. Um, In um, this study, which was 2018 to 2022, it shows that 40% of the world's weapons are made in the United States. And do we think that God does not see that? He does. And I don't think he likes it. In fact, God hates it. There are some who would like to view the U.S. as a godly, moral, righteous nation. A special nation because we are a Christian nation. But they are wrong. Yes, there are many Christians in this nation. For For now, we are the country that has the most Christians in the world. But that does not mean that we are especially or necessarily or automatically pleasing to to God. In fact, like the nation of Israel in the time of Amos, it might mean that we're especially in danger of hypocrisy and blindness to our own sins. If Amos were to walk here, walk around uh, at this time, I doubt that Amos would affirm that we are such a wonderfully uh, model, moral Christian nation just because we're American. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that America is like the worst nation or any, any worse than other nations. I'm just saying we're not better than any nations just because there are Christians here. We ought to look at what the Lord says about our nation. I think Amos would prophesy against all the ways that the U.S. is fallen and broken and sinful, just like every other nation. But we shouldn't just compare Israel to nations, because Israel is not just a nation. It was a people who had a covenant relationship with God. They had the law of God and the commandments of God, just like we do. And therefore, we must ask ourselves if the church, our church, um, or the church at large, has anything to hear from the word of God today through the word to, uh, to the Israelites. And like the Israelites are being spoken to, we should ask ourselves if we have been happy to judge others when we should be looking to ourselves. If we have been a part of denying justice to the oppressed, do our lives show 
that we care about the poor and the oppressed? Do we profane God's holy name by using others as objects for sexual pleasure? And do we forget all the ways that God has been faithful and kind to us? Remember where God says, you guys, I rescued you from Egypt. I've sent you prophets. I've raised up Nazarites from your children. I think this last one, this last question I ask, this is um, probably the most intense one. For all sin begins with the belief that God is not good and that God does not love us. When the truth is that God is constantly loving us, saving us from our blind and stupid ways, rescuing us from our wandering, from where our wandering leads us. Yet we, like children, are tempted to say to God, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? You still haven't given me this, this thing that I want. Do you really care about me? How could you love me? You don't love me. I don't see you loving me. Amos reminds us that God is brokenhearted for how we forget about all that God has done for us. We take for granted God's gifts to us, and we refuse to see God's goodness in our lives. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness and gave you the land of the Amorites. I raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true? People of Israel declares the Lord. He's begging them to remember what they've gone through together, the things that God has done in their lives to save them. God does not have a neutral or casual or distant heart towards Israel. He's begging them, engaging them, reminding them of the things that he has done, their relationship, according to his ways and his plans. God is close. God is close to them, and he's wanting them to remember and not focus on what they don't have or what they're trying to do with their festivals or trying to gain for themselves through their activity, which they know is not of God. He's saying, hey, no, 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 look back at me. Let me remind you what we've gone through together, what the love that I've poured out to you. One of the ways... I wanted to bring it back to church and not just talk about, like, nations. One of the ways that I have been tempted to forget the goodness of God for us as a community is our lack of a building. And I'm sharing this honestly with you, um, confessionally. Uh, I was at a conversation with other pastors, and one pastor said, Oh, my goodness, we've gone through so much. We were um, renting this community center for 12 years before we got our own building. It was such a long time. And I didn't say anything, but in my heart, I was like, try 37, buddy. (laughs) Our church, the Palo Alto Vineyard Church, has been a pop-up church 
for 37 years. We've been um, in existence. We were founded 37 years ago. And for 37 years, we've like schlepped our stuff across from the trailer. And just look at those, the things back there. And the, you know, on the signs and everything we've, you know. And in some ways, it's been awesome, right? And and, uh, those of you who are new, you'll soon find out that this is not a church where you just open up your mouth, consume, and then go home, (laughs) right? If we recognize you at all, we'd be like, hey, greeter, next week, tech team, right now. This is a get involved and help out kind of church, and I love that. It's wonderful, right? It's just a like all-hands-on-deck kind of church. Kind of cool, but kind of exhausting. Volunteers and staff have burnt out. People in our community don't know that we exist. Again and again, uh, my children's friends, parents, like so many people are like, oh, what church do you go to? Vineyard Palo Alto. And they're like, I didn't know there was a vineyard in Palo Alto. I'm like, yes, we've been here for 37 years. But we're pop-up church, so nobody knows about us. And there's so many churches in Palo Alto that have like less than 30 people, but a large building. And that's annoying. (laughs) But the fact is, we live in and worship in one of the most ridiculously expensive places in the country. Am I right? And um, we just don't have a building. And I have to confess that I'm tempted to look at what we don't have. Right? Just a, a, I'm tempted to think, ah, if we didn't have to put that up, if we didn't have to organize the volunteers to do all this, if we didn't have to be a pop-up church. And I have been tempted to focus on what we don't have rather than what we've been given. At a prayer time this last week, we were asking God about the whole topic of location. And one of the things that was spoken out is just the invitation from God to think about what we have been given. And I was very convicted by that. And I I feel like the message of God was, "Have have you ever been homeless? And I was like, well, we did go under a tent for a while. No, 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 no. No, God has always provided for us. More than provided for us. God has been so generous to us. And the only thing that has depleted my joy is my covetousness. God has provided good, relatively cheap places to meet for worship. And not only that, he's poured out his spiritual gifts. People who have prophetic words. People who pray. People who love children. I mean... Wow, what God is to given. I, I wish I could explain and express to you the great gifts that we have been given in this church. A pastor friend recently said to me, you know, there are a lot of churches that would pray to have your problems. And I was like, ouch. And yes. Maybe that's a prayer that believers will often have. Ouch! And yes. 
Do you ever experience that in your life with God? Ouch and yes. I want to repent and declare to you today that God has been good to us. And I pray that God would give you the eyes to see how he's been good to you. God has saved you from Egypt, whatever that means in your life, from how you've been wandering. He's raised up prophets in your life, provided holy people to be an example to you. And the question is, do you have eyes to see? The powers and principalities of the Silicon Valley wants you to focus on what you don't have. You don't have that house on that hill, do you? You don't have this one job that's so amazing, do you? The enemy wants you to be dejected about your life and our life together as a church, to be blind to your blessings and the profound saving love of, of God in your life. But God is alive. God is here, God is good, and God is speaking to us. How is God inviting you to respond? Merciful God, have mercy on us. Mm.